Food critic in a pandemic. What's your most vivid memory of that time? Crying so much. Crying over so many meals with gratitude and relief. People trying to make social statements through their food. Louisa Chu is a chef, journalist, and adventurer. She's been a judge on Food Network's Iron Chef America, a host on PBS's Emmy Award-winning Gourmet's Diary of a Foodie, and as Chicago Tribune food critic, she was a finalist for the 2022 James Beard Foundation Award for Distinguished Restaurant Reviewing. And now, she's our guest. I'm Charlie Myerson with ChicagoPublicSquare.com, and this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. My friend and Rivet 360 colleague, Sheila Solomon, is off working on something else. More to come. Louisa, welcome. Give us an overview of your life's fascinating arc, beginning with folding those menus at your family's restaurant on Chicago's West Side at the tender age of four. I was working at my Uncle Eric's, my dearly departed Uncle Eric's Chinese-American chop suey restaurant, Chinese Pagoda, And this was back in the day, you know, when we had paper menus for takeout, which is, you know, I mean, gone by the wayside now. So remember folding those paper menus in crisp thirds. That was my first restaurant job front of the house. And then shortly after, kind of frighteningly to think about it now, my first uh, restaurant cooking job when I was maybe five, six or so, and uh, standing on a, um, I'm pretty sure from my memory, uh, a shaky, slippery milk crate over a um, deep fryer, professional deep fryer, deep frying egg rolls and um, the beloved butterfly shrimp, which was so work intensive. One of my great aunts, she hated when us kids would eat those because they were shrimp that were wrapped in bacon and then batter dipped, and then deep fried, and then deep fried again to order. So um, a lot of labor violations, I think, these days. Take us beyond your your preteen years uh, into, well, <laughs> among other things, a James Beard scholarship to attend Le Coton Bleu in Paris. My French needs work. I know. How, how did that come about? Well, at that point, I was living in um, the Los Angeles area, um, Beverly Hills to be specific, which sounds so much more fabulous than it actually kind of was. Um, <laughs> I, at that point, came to kind of an early pre-midlife crisis, speaking of pre-preteen, you know, this is pre-midlife at this point, and was trying to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and thought, you know, I've always wanted to go to culinary school to be a better food journalist. And, you know, I'd been uh, doing some, uh, you know, radio, TV and film for some years at that point. And it was a choice between the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, or uh, the Cordon Bleu in Paris. And so before I was deciding, you know, or while I was deciding at that point, I was doing an epic cross Western States ski trip at that time, talked to a lot of people, and it seemed like everybody really connected more with Le Cordon Bleu. And so did I. I mean, at that point, I was kind of realizing that classical French cuisine uh, was becoming sort of an endangered species. And it was such a basis for fine dining and, you know, really food journalism at that point that I kind of felt like I had a very small window to attend uh, Julia Child's alma mater, and that was a big reason why, specifically, uh, at the Cordon Bleu in Paris. And so, uh, you know, off off we went. 
So the restaurant thing came easy to you, oh, no. almost genetically, it seems. <laughs> no. At what point did, did journalism enter your mental mix? It's actually kind of hand in hand. And oh, no, restaurant work was so hard. And uh, because I worked through the family restaurants, you know, and I mean, I was uh, working at my one uncle's restaurant and then another cousin's restaurant. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a hard life through grade school and through high school to the point where when I got to college, like a lot of people who grew up working in the family restaurant business, I never wanted to work in the restaurant business again. You know, at some point through high school and then in college, um, I decided that I wanted to be a journalist um, and, um, you know, never wanted to work in restaurants again. <laughs> and then much to my immigrant parents' horror, I thought, hey, you know what? This restaurant life is kind of interesting. <laughs> and so um, that's when internships or the stages, now that everybody's watching The Bear, reacquainted people with the idea of the stage or the apprenticeship uh, at restaurants, I got a chance to stage at some of the best restaurants in the world, including Alain Ducasse in Paris, El Billy in Spain, and Alinea in Chicago, and um, really wanted to do both. Um, and so it was uh, it, it, it was really kind of a convergence of um, um, the best of two really hard worlds. <laughs> yeah, when I when I said easy, I, I didn't mean because. <laughs> Believe me, I do not in any way consider work in the the food sector easy. You know, I mean, as it's a it's a common immigrant story where you you know your parents come over and um, the last thing that they want their uh, kids to do is to work that really hard restaurant life. So um, so yeah, so uh, you know, a challenge on many levels. One of your bios describes you as an Anthony Bourdain fixer. Mm. I have to ask, what's a fixer? A fixer is a term that uh, is broad, uh, and uh, in that context was um, really a field producer, a location scout, um, a sidekick, um, really someone who, you know, you call and they fix things, you know, I mean, and as um, as Chicagoans might know from like the old political or um perhaps organized crime terminology, you know, it has a very broad definition. But uh, generally speaking, in especially uh, when it comes to uh, foreign correspondence, you know, you need somebody who's on the ground who literally speaks the language on a lot of different levels. And so I first worked for Tony in Paris as a fixer because I was just out of Cordon Bleu and um, just out of my stage at Alain Ducasse, you know, uh, going to El Bulli. So I understood, you know, so I spoke the language literally of French, but then also, uh, you know, had my kitchen connections. So I was able to be a fixer for Tony in Paris and in Chicago. What's the most essential thing you learned? You know, it it's um, showing up a little early and being understanding and patient. Um Tony was notorious, you know, for being um, very outspoken, right? But uh, it was really in those quiet moments that I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, a lot of people who have worked with him over the years had said that he was always the one to show up first, to show up early. And, oh, and he hated when people were late. <laughs> you know, so And then just kind of like his attention to detail. I always remember... When we were sitting in a booth at um, 
Bert's Place Pizza.、Um, Which it's funny because、um, when we showed up at Bert's, Bert, the notorious Bert Katz,、um, who you know really is widely credited for creating the Chicago-style caramelized crust deep dish pizza, he wasn't sure he wanted Tony or anybody you know with a television camera in his kitchen, and he wanted to meet the guy. First, I mean, he trusted me, and he was like, "Okay, we'll bring the guy by." And I'm like, "Okay, well, Bert, you know, we're gonna we're gonna like have cameras and everything ready to shoot." And he's like, "I don't know, we'll see." <laughs> so we showed up. He met Tony, and they really hit it off because they had fellow、um, spirits of adventurers too. You know, just kind of thoughtful moments and attention to detail. I think is what I learned most from a man who was, you know, best known for being, you know, so outspoken. How has your time, having worked in the restaurant business, shaped your work as a as a food and restaurant critic? Oh my gosh, so much more empathy and understanding on so many different levels, and、um, that was what was so hard about the pandemic. I think you know, realizing that.、Um, I mean, I I just had this like just deep sense of dread about all of the people who were not going to ever get recognized, and despite. All of the efforts to get them some sort of recognition and compensation that that you know help was you know going to be very hard in coming.、Um, so you know empathy for the people who are unseen and、uh, many of them,、uh, many of us who are I- immigrant workers. Food critic in a pandemic.、Mm-hmm. What's your most vivid memory of that time? Oh, crying so much. Uh, I mean, crying over so many meals with like、uh, you know gratitude and relief. People trying to make social statements through their food、uh, to the point where、um, when I my my first dine in experience was actually at、um, Owamni in Minneapolis,、uh, which is a、um, indigenous decolonized restaurant. Um, and、um, and this was shortly after I think my first booster e dining in, and so just like just sobbing through so many dishes, and then、uh, discussing with、um, the chefs and founders、um, uh, afterwards, and we were you know crying and just joking, saying that at some point that they almost had to adjust like their flavor profiles to accommodate for the tears in people's food. And I had that experience so much, like sitting in my car. My first restaurant review here in Chicago、um, was before that at Dear Margaret, a restaurant that opened during the pandemic, and they specifically designed their, you know, Midwestern meets French Canadian,、uh, you know, home style food, and just sobbing and just like such relief that it was so good、um, that we even had restaurant reviews at that point. And then at Kasama, which was again one of my few. Indoor dining restaurant experiences. I think after my second booster,、um, and、um, and just how it was just so, you know, touching the story behind this fine dining、uh, chef couple who really wanted to leave that world behind and open just like a neighborhood all day cafe. And they realized that the only way that they were going to survive the pandemic was by doing. A fine dining Filipino inspired thirteen course tasting menu, and just again, just like sobbing through so many courses through that. I mean, just so many tears through so much beautiful work through so many restaurants、um, in in Chicago and and beyond. 
What long-term changes do you see in Chicago's dining scene, for that matter, the, the nation and the world's dining cultures, in the aftermath of the pandemic, whenever that aftermath begins? Uh, yeah. I don't know when that is. I know. Yeah, we're definitely still in it. Um, with so many restaurants having to close temporarily still because um, they have staff out due to COVID. One of the big changes that we're seeing is um, the respect and redefinition of what is a restaurant. Uh, one of my favorite places in Chicago is Funeral Potatoes, which has now gone nearly two years as a virtual restaurant. Um Two women who uh, worked in some terrific restaurants and decided early on in the pandemic when they, you know, like many people lost their jobs, um, that um, they still wanted to keep cooking. They needed to st still keep cooking. And so they started cooking out of a shared kitchen. And so now they have been doing these stunning weekly changing menus which is such an incredible feat. Again, the empathy, empathy that I have as a chef, you know, I worked as the chef at a fishing lodge where I tried to change my menu like every night. And I'll tell you, it is a challenge. But to try to do that um, for a virtual restaurant every week, and then not only do they cook, but then also deliver, they started out delivering most of their, you know, meals. And it's just incredibly beautiful, thoughtful food that has a real, I mean, social consciousness to it. I mean, really making choices so that they're not burning themselves out. Um, so that's, you know, definitely some of the changes that I see not only in the Chicago area, but worldwide. And I, I hope that, um, that that's some of the silver lining is that we see is just, you know, a really a redefinition and respect for, you know, what is a restaurant. Do you see any changes in the dynamic among customers, owners, and employers, and staff at restaurants? Yeah, um, I see some, you know, the shared kind of gratitude uh, for people uh, continues, and and it has continued. I mean, I always like to tell people, it's like I never stopped, uh, never stopped going to restaurants, even at the very beginning of the pandemic when we had our first lockdowns. My very first experience was ordering takeout from Katie's Dumplings um, in Oak Park, which was the first place to go into lockdown in the very early days of the pandemic. And, you know, we didn't know what was happening. They dropped the food in my trunk and there was such a huge relief and gratitude on both sides that that actually worked. You know, they didn't have any idea how that worked. As I hope we've established, you're an accomplished preparer of food all by yourself. How often do you eat out for professional reasons? And how many visits per review of an eating establishment do you generally partake in? The easy question is we, um, the easy question answer is uh, we generally try to visit a restaurant at least twice for a review um, because, you know, that gives us a little bit of an idea and it's a tiny, tiny snapshot we know. Um, but we try to give at least uh, two visits for a review. But if there's something that goes kind of like, really wrong. I try to go back at least one more time. And, um, you know, that happened with, for example, unfortunately, um, my lowest review at the time, which was Wiener Circle, um, which I loved. It's the, you know, notorious, uh, hot dog stand in Chicago. And I went to review them because they reopened with a new bar area. And, um, 
I had a really bad experience um, on my second visit. So I went back a third and actually a fourth time. But then they took that criticism to heart. And I, 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 you know, and I really wanted to review them because they're an important part of our community for better or worse, you know, I mean, and they have a, again, a long tradition in Chicago to the point where we then ended up awarding them a chef's, uh, I'm sorry, a, a critic's choice award for, um, uh, uh, for this past year as a uh, frontline enforcers because they ended up taking the criticism that I had to heart, which was like at the time it was, you know, not good, not a good experience, um, to really enforcing, um, COVID precautions. And that's, what's really helped them. Um, but then how often do I dine out? It varies. I mean, like, you know, working on a couple of projects right now, I might dine out like every single night and it's sometimes, um, two places in one day. Um, but, uh, it, it, it can tend to vary. So like this week I've got a heavy writing week. So it's going to be maybe, maybe twice, maybe three times though. It depends. How much cooking do you do at home for uh, yourself? These days, so little, almost none, because I am also a big, uh, leftovers person. So I always take leftovers and also a huge, you know, food waste minimizer. So, you know, especially because there are so many different things that restaurants can make better than I can. For example, like on my own dim sum dumplings. I mean, I'm just never going to attempt to make a whole you know, dim sum array at home when we have so many great places in Chicago where I can actually go and order out for that. What's your favorite thing to cook for yourself? Okay, this is going to be funny because I do think that someday I'm going to start a um, uh, maybe a podcast series on this when I, in my spare time. But uh, this was actually going back to a story that I did for the trip a few years ago. One of my favorite indulgences that I kind of save is... Um, my own take of um, my favorite instant ramen noodles, which is the spicy shin ramyun that I make kind of dry, which I learned from this story that I did for the trip a few years ago, seems to be sort of the preferred method for a lot of my fellow food journalists. And my mouth is watering thinking about it. And I like to add <laughs> um, um, dried seaweed, kimchi, and... Um, Sometimes now, because I am what I like to call PVPO, personally vegan, professionally omnivorous, I like to add sometimes um, some uh, vegan just egg and um, sometimes some vegan American cheese. And it is so good, spicy, salty. It's an umami bomb. And I mean, seriously, my mouth just waters thinking about it. All right. As, as an aspirational uh, vegan myself, I, I got to ask you, where, where's the best um, veggie burger in Chicago? Oh boy, that is so hard. And I'm actually working on that story. I've been working on an ongoing vegan restaurant, vegan food guide. But one of the places that I visited, which um, kind of stopped me in my tracks, because when I was on my way to working on like a, a best veggie, I can't remember, something, maybe it was a veggie burger at that point, or maybe a veggie hot dog, but um, a place that I reviewed not too long ago, long ago called Can't Believe It's Not Meat. And they do veggie and vegan Chicago-style foods, including 
a burger, which you can get with either dairy or vegan cheese. And I kind of have to defer to dairy cheese when, um, if you have a choice, because vegan cheese is not quite there yet. But, um, oh my gosh, my mouth is still watering. Um, but another place that I just recently tried their great, I'm not sure if that's totally, no, no, I guess that's actually a veggie burger. Of all places, again, Wiener Circle. They have a charred mm. Beyond Burger. And because when people know how to cook, they know how to get some great flavors. So they use Beyond Burger Patties and they char it and they actually top it Chicago style, you know, optional if you want to add cheese on there. And um, I got to say, if you want to add their famous cheddar, which is, you know, that kind of like cheddar, uh, that cheese food, uh, quote unquote food from Wisconsin. Mm. <laughs> It's so good. It is so good. So I would say right now that Wiener Circle char burger might be at the top of my veggie burgers. One of the hottest intersections of food in Chicago in 2022 has been the Hulu show, mm -hmm. The Bear, about a Chicago-based beef joint. What's your take on it? I watched one episode and um, I thought it was beautiful and I love the dialogue and it was so well done, but I was so triggered that I couldn't watch anymore right now. <laughs> um, it's kind of like um, Better Call Saul. I've got to put those shows off uh, for a little bit until I can kind of feel a little bit more in a safe place, um, but um, they got a lot right. Um, but I'll tell you though, um, spoiler alert uh, for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, at one point, when he throws away, uh, at the end of the first episode, when he throws away some ingredients, I gasped. I, I'm like, what? You don't throw away, you don't throw away good, perfectly good ingredients? <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So it is, and I did a story recently um, with the former chef and owner of Cafe Marie-Jean, a beautiful uh, French-inspired all-day cafe um, who recently has come back to Chicago with a pop-up called Uncle Bunny's. And um, we're discussing that quite a bit and, you know, really talked about how the bear is, you know, it seems like it's going to be about uh, Italian beef. And I actually talked to the star uh, who plays a main character, Jeremy Allen White, in it when I first had just seen, you know, preview clip. And um, I said, it's kind of like about this chef who comes back to take over his family's Italian beef, uh, you know, uh, shack, but they don't want him to. And then I watched the first episode and I realized it's really more about trauma and grief. So definitely I included in that Uncle Bunny story a trigger warning for chefs that it's about trauma and grief. Let me back up a little bit. Can you tell us a little more about what in that first episode triggered you? What, what caused you particular discomfort? You know, it's so fascinating. It's interesting that you asked that because I'm not sure that I can call out details. It is, um, um, even from my early days of producing radio, um, you know, before we go live on air, it's kind of what I called, um, the pre-show panic. It is that necessary, like just instinctive panic and you kind of have to have it. Um, so there's a lot of that, you know, panic. That is necessary. Uh, that is shown in that first episode. Um, it's the, and for me, it's also a little bit about um, the 
grief of having to give up a little bit, um, at least in the beginning, uh, kind of some fine dining dreams and then working through that and how you're going to get there. And, um, I know I've read enough about, uh, the series to know that, you know, about how that progresses. Someone said, and I don't know the origin of this quote, but I've, I've come to love it over the years, uh, that nerves are the tribute we pay our audience. Mm. Uh, certainly <laughs> I think that's true in broadcasting mm-hmm. from what you say. It's also a part of the, the food business, the restaurant business, mm-hmm. Uh, which brings us to your podcast with Axios Chicago's Monica Eng, uh, Chewing. Yes. I have to confess, it took me a while to catch on to just how clever that name is. <laughs> Chew Eng. Do, do most of your listeners get that? Am I extraordinarily slow? No, no. That was actually something that I, so that is a name that I have to um, credit uh, Monica with. So back in the day, uh, we met in the green room at WBEZ. And this was when I was doing a food blog at WBEZ, and she was a food reporter at the Tribune. And um, she said, hey, we should do a podcast together called Chewing. Uh, Chew for your last name and Ang for mine. And so I was like, all right. <laughs> so, um, it works. Yeah, exactly. It works. But uh, yeah, I don't think most people uh, get it. And it's just a subtle thing. So the podcast has been on hiatus f- for, for a while, but you're, you're coming back. What's changing? What's been changing over the past year is actually that our podcast has become more conversational between, uh, among actually me and Monica and our producer Iris, because I kind of felt like, you know, at some point we were sort of, you know, chasing after a lot of short interviews, not maybe chasing, but just including a lot of short interviews. Uh, with celebrities and chefs and authors who were, you know, uh, plugging something that was coming through town. And what I kind of felt like, um, especially through the pandemic, uh, I wanted to focus more on doing the podcast, um, the way I like listening to it. And I like listening to like your kind of podcast too, you know, where it's more conversational and long form. And um, so we're going to be focusing a little bit of a long form um, on a uh, story that we've been wanting to do for some time. How did your time on Iron Chef shape your approach to journalism, to media, to podcasting? Oh my gosh, it was like walking into a video game. So I, um, <laughs> so I loved watching the original Iron Chef Japan. And uh, walking on that set, I will never forget. I will always remember the dry ice, the cool air, the blue lights, and then sitting on the judge's stand, the judge's, judge's podium, and then actually tasting the food. And then and then at the end of it, everybody else is kind of like, okay, that's a wrap. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want this to end. <laughs> I want to I wanna live in this moment for a while. And um, I think literally being behind the scenes of that and, you know, I mean, and kind of reminding um, myself and then other people, too, is that um, uh, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the cooking competition shows um, because I don't necessarily think that they're healthy uh, for a lot of different reasons. But being on that was just realizing, you know, like, how can I convey and capture that moment? And that's so much of what I try to convey, um, you know, as a journalist now. 
how important and for someone as 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 widely recognized as you are how mm. easy is it for a food critic to stay anonymous while reviewing oh charlie i'm not recognized really at all <laughs> I mean, no. really yeah. not at all no almost never i mean for a lot of different reasons and i've said this before semi jokingly is that um as a middle aged asian woman i'm kind of invisible to society number 1 uh, and um Number two is that also, maybe not number two, but also is that uh, we've made it a real point. Um, my fellow uh, food critic, Nick Kindlesberger and I, the Chicago Tribune, we've really tried to make it a point to really, um, you know, broaden our range when it comes to the kinds of restaurants that we review. So they may be places that... Um, they don't really have an idea of like what the Chicago Tribune is, much less what food critics or who I am and, you know, much less care really. And, um, you know, one of my favorite places was, uh, that I got a chance to finally review was Korean Spoon, a tiny now takeout only mom and pop restaurant, you know, cafe in, um, the, what I like to call the, you know, what I've been calling the new Korea town. And, um, they kind of didn't really know, like, what? Well, like, who are you? What do you want? You know, but they were just like so incredibly sweet. And, you know, and certainly, of course, they knew, um, you know, about the, uh, the newspapers in the Korean community. But, um, but yeah, no, I'm almost never recognized, which I think is like so funny. And important. Do you consider anonymity an essential part of your job? Yes and no. I mean, which is one of the reasons why um, our former food critic, Phil Vitell, came out. Um, you know, I mean, this has been a, you know, like an, seems like an age old question since, um, uh, you know, Ruth Reichel wore her disguises at the New York Times. And even, you know, when Jonathan Gold, you know, came out publicly at the LA Times, it's kind of, um, you know, like accepted that now, especially in the age of social media, that it's hard to be anonymous, but, um, you know, we aim for anonymity as much as possible. Um, like we never reserve in our own names. We certainly never make it known, which is a funny thing. My parents always ask, they're like, do they know you're coming? And I'm like, no, mom, dad, they don't. (laughs) So we try to be, um, but, um, it's, you know, again, having worked in the restaurant business, there's only so much you can do to make anything better with your food or your recipes or your cooking or your ingredients uh, for one person, one critic, than it is for any other table who's sitting around you or, you know, getting takeout or whatever. I understand because I am incredibly well informed that you're working on what might be described as a super secret project for the Tribune, uh, a, a comprehensive listing of the Chicago area's best new restaurants. Mm-hmm. See how well-informed I am. What can you tell me about that? (laughs) So I can say uh, that um, our former food critic, um, Phil Vitell, had a uh, very closely watched Phil's 50 list that was updated up until, you know, just before the pandemic. And um, we've been working on a super semi-secret now, because I'm sharing it with you and um, our listeners right now, on a new best restaurants list. And it is an epic undertaking. <laughs> so, um, you know, okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm ignorant uh, on this as I've, I think well established at this point, 
my first thought is, oh, what's so what's so hard about it? You you know, you get a list of news restaurants and and you rank them. So what right. what makes it so challenging? You have to go. <laughs> you have to go. We don't just like kick back and just kind of like you know, oh yeah, sure, that sounds like about right. Uh, we have to go. And so are we talking about dozens, hundreds, tens? It's going to be definitely in the dozens. So the Phil's 50 okay. list, um, now there's, you know, now we as the Chicago Tribune have two food critics. So it might be 50, it might be 100. We're not quite sure yet, you know, but for sure, there's a lot. And um, so, yeah, so it's a super secret semi-secret list and um you know we 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 uh, make these assessments by going we don't we don't just like sit back um and like uh read about it we actually go my digestive tract and i salute you <laughs> closing thoughts louisa i certainly hope that uh everything that we've been through for the last couple few years and longer is um, I hope we can take away some empathy and some grace and still continue to share in, you know, wonderful food and drink and uh, community. Amen. Our guest on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded August 8th, 2022, has been Louisa Chu. You can reach her via email at lchu, that's L-C-H-U, at chicagotribune.com. And join me for a roundup of the news weekday mornings at chicagopublicsquare.com. I'm Charlie Meyerson for producer Jesse Patend and everyone at Rivet 360. Thanks for listening to Chicago Media Talks.